This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. We're about to play a recording from the National Disciple Making Forum featuring Freedom in Christ Ministries. Their ministry helps Christians take hold of their freedom in Christ. And one form of freedom is finding freedom from addiction. And that's why we want you to know about Marcus D. Carvalho's resource called Untangling Addiction. It's available for free download at discipleship.org slash ebooks. It's basically a disciple who happens to be a medical professional's take on addiction from a scientific standpoint. It's very interesting content, very unique, and you can download it for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Today's content comes from Freedom in Christ Ministries and their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Discipleship Counseling. The episode is called Position in Christ, featuring Dr. Neil T. Anderson, Reverend Dan Stutt, and Jan Turner. Good afternoon. I'm Dan. I serve with Freedom in Christ Ministries. Neil just stepped out for a moment, but he'll be back. Uh, well, Neil wrote uh, a bunch of books, um, uh, but his first two were Victory Over the Darkness and The Bondage Breaker, written about 30 years ago. Uh, he founded Freedom in Christ Ministries. We're based in Knoxville, just a few hours east of here. Um, and uh, we operate on a system of ministry associates that we train uh, we train people to serve in churches uh, to help other people get free in Christ. Jesus said, or uh, uh, Paul wrote that Jesus, uh, um, it is for freedom that Christ came to set us free, right? Galatians 5.1, I'm, I'm mixing up my, uh, uh, my, my verses, but Galatians 5.1, uh, it is for freedom that Christ came to set us free. Jesus said he started his ministry. He said, I've come to set the captives free, Right. Um, and so what we want uh, to help people do is to live in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. And so Neil will be talking about our position in Christ. If, if we are, as Second Corinthians 5.17 says, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And as one who grew up in, in church in a Christian family, uh, I wondered why I was still acting, behaving, feeling like the old when I was new. And the position of, of who I was as a new creation helped me to overcome all those behaviors that caused me really to hate myself. But it started with an understanding of what Jesus had done. So, Neil? Thank you, Dan. Somebody here, just out of curiosity, have uh, a need for large print books? Just got this yesterday. It's the bondage breaker large print. It would look too thick for me to read, so I'll give it to you. <laughs> it went from 220 pages to 500. <laughs> um, I get this kind of stuff just about every day, but I'd like to. Uh, this came in the mail email just yesterday. Dear Neil, it's been 25 years ago that you served as visiting professor at TED's. That's Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I was privileged to be in the classroom at the time. I was serving as a missionary in Brazil, very interested in learning about the spirit world. My goal was to be equipped to minister to those in the third world. 
especially those who have been involved in spiritism before their conversion to true Christianity, but your course changed my life. I was not aware of the spiritual bondage in my life, my own life until I sat under your teaching. In the last 25 years, I've taught weekend seminars primarily based on your course throughout the United States, Brazil, Argentina, and in Africa. I composed a course called Understanding the Spiritual World using my primary textbook, The Bondage Breaker. As a result, a university bookstore has sold hundreds of your books. Students tell me it was one of the most meaningful books they've read. Um, Tammy, come here for a second. <laughs> She's, I just surprised her, so sorry. I, I was really touched by this. Um, three four weeks ago, American Association of Christian Counseling um, actually invited me to present. I was going to skip the conference this year, and they called me and said, you didn't send in a paper request. And I said, well, my wife passed away and kind of missed the deadline. I said, well, not for you. And so we had 700 on my wor- workshop on, on uh, fear. It was amazing. And, uh, but they also asked me to do two training videos uh, for the American Association of Christian Counseling. Folks, I don't know if you understand this. That's run by professional psychologists uh, asking a pastor teacher to do a training seminar for them. If you would have told me that 10 years ago, I, I don't think I'd have believed it. And so something really good is happening there, and I'm very encouraged by that. But this young lady here, if I can read this, um, I hope this email finds you doing well. I'm planning to attend your conference, this one. I'm reaching out and hoping to spend a few minutes. I've been a therapist for 30 years. I've used your, your work, especially the Steps to Freedom in Christ Guide. Over the last four years, God has met me in my counseling chair. I have come face-to-face with a wonderful counselor, and he's radically led me into the truth, changing my life in unbelievable ways. I guess that the right word, that's the right word, because... Although I've been a Christian for many years, I really did not believe that God could do what he says he can do. Like most Christian counselors, we say we believe, but really we believe in managing symptoms and that the diagnosis is the ceiling. That was so well said because you can make a whole living out there as a counselor just by diagnosing somebody. That doesn't solve anything. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it's amazing. I, I like the way, not anymore, she said, um, not anymore, I believe. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Your works and your words have been a catalyst for this transformation. I'm now seeing restoration from diagnosis that I once believed was death sentences. No answer for that. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. Share a little bit your, your journey. Ooh. Well, I wasn't playing. Don't take too long. I got to oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, I just, um, I, I, I felt led to just send that to Dr. Anderson. I, I work with a large church in Murfreesboro, and I have used his work for probably 15 years. And I, I knew that, see, I didn't know that who the sun sets free is really free indeed. I, I didn't know that. So I, I couldn't give what I, I couldn't give what I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know my own identity in Christ. I didn't know what he could do. And as I sat in my chair, I came, really did come face to face with the wonderful counselor. And he began to speak to me. And as he began to speak to me, I was compelled to speak to other people and share it. And so it has been radical and, oh, every day is like a treasure hunt, just watching what God is doing. And so I I really am hoping and and praying that this work, and I'm going to tell everybody I know, every therapist I know, every doctor I know, to start to believe what God can do. So I'm just thankful for you and what you've taught me. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. That's wonderful. We need more people like that. What thrills me is I've had both feet in the, 
you know, my transition in 10 years at Talbot, half teaching evangelism, I always taught discipleship. But picking up the pastoral counseling side of this whole ministry was really amazing. And what's, what's in hindsight, looking back, if this does good or bad for you, I don't know. But uh, all the books I've written on anxiety disorders and anger, whatever else, where'd you get your psychology from? Scripture. Seriously. I mean, psychology, by definition, is the study of the soul. Uh, I don't feel good about a secular psychology like I don't feel good about a liberal theology. But you can't throw psychology out. And, uh, I mean, we are just hearing all the time today about churches who are not dealing with mental health issues in people's lives. And I'm here to just tell you flat out, if you don't deal with those issues, they're not going to grow. They're stuck. They can't get beyond their own limitations. And... uh, But you have an answer. I mean, have fun, folks. Have you ever just sat down with somebody and watched God right in front of you set a person free? We see it all the time. You can too. It has nothing to do with me. It's it's really a God thing. And so why wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, you know, we have a book set in your church free, and it's a corporate conflict resolution, all based on repentance itself. Because there's a lot of times God doesn't deal with just a person. He deals with churches. That's why many of your epistles are written to churches. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it says he's writing to churches, the seven churches of Revelation. Everyone says at the end, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. It's not a question of God leading us or loving his body, folks. Are we listening? I mean, that is the real question and the real issue. Um, We're going to move on to strongholds. And um, if you got your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to combine two sessions to, into one here. And, uh, but just get the essential drift of what we are really talking about. Here's the problem, folks. I said, you come into this world, you're born dead in your trespasses and sins. You have really neither the presence of of God in your life, nor the knowledge of his ways. And so everybody here learned to live your life independent of God. You had no other way you could do that. What you learned was just what you assimilated from the environment around you. And then one day you came to Christ, your brand new creation. Old things have passed away, all things become new. But nobody pushed the clear button up here. Everything that was programmed in my mind is still there. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 2, no longer be conformed to this world because you were at one time. Everybody here differently, by the way. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, there's no instant way to renew your mind. That's impossible. But prior to Christ, you learn to live your life independent of God. Essentially, that's what your flesh patterns are. Uh, so crucify that. Repentance is a change of mind. I used to live this way. I don't live that way anymore. And... Um, And now I live by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. In other words, this isn't a physical battle. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, how are those thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God? Essentially, they're simulated from the environment in which we are raised. Two ways, primarily. One is just through prevailing experiences. 
the home you were raised in, the family you were raised in, the church you go went to or didn't go to, the playgrounds you played in, the friends you had, this kind of a thing. And by the way, two children living in the same home can respond totally different to that same environment. We all know that and we've seen it. And so it isn't just the environment, it's how you interpret that environment. And, uh, but it's also through traumatic experiences. It took me years to realize something, that people are not in bondage to past traumas. They're in bondage to lies they believed because of the trauma. The trauma's gone. I mean, the, the wounds have healed. The bruise is gone, the cuts, whatever it was, you know. Uh, the damage is done, kind of a thing. But what remains is what's up here. And people during those times, I'm no good. You know, it's like Daryl's testimony of, uh, you know, I had these father wounds, you know, and they're still there and, until we deal with those issues. And more times than not, you will find kids assuming it's their fault that mom and God, dad got divorced or I'm getting beat up because I really deserved it. There's something wrong with me. And you can believe that all your life unless it's dealt with. And, uh, and that's what we have to do to help people. You're not going to disciple them if you don't. Because that's part of their memory bank. That's part of, of their flesh patterns that are still there, which we have to crucify. And, uh, and by the grace of God, we can do that. Now, you're going to be tempted. I don't want to get into this too deeply, but look at my little diagram in your handout there. We have an outer person and an inner person, a material part of me and an immaterial part of me. And obviously, it all works together wonderfully well. Uh, and one combination is very obvious, is the mind and soul, the mind and the brain combination. One way to illustrate that today is, is that every computer operation has a hardware side and a software side. Well, your brain essentially is obviously is the hardware side. But when you look at it that way, uh, where is the emphasis in Scripture? Is it on the hardware or the software? Well, clearly it's in the software, is it not? I mean, we do agree on that, I think. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind and, and take every thought captive, etc. Now, can you have a hardware problem? Well, of course you can. Organic brain syndrome, Down syndrome, Alzheimer's disease, bullet between the ears. I mean, that's a hardware problem. But the emphasis is on the software. And so we need to take care of our bodies. And just, but the point is, is that your brain doesn't tell your mind what to do. It's your mind, essentially, that tells your brain what to do. Now, off of your central nervous system, your brain and your spinal cord, is a peripheral nervous system. Don't make this complex. It's really quite simple. Which has two very distinct channels. Your somatic nervous system and your autonomic nervous system. Your somatic nervous system is what regulates muscular skeletal movements, gestures like this, speech. It's what I have volitional control over. And you can see that correlates with the will. Your autonomic nervous system is what regulates all of your glands, which you actually don't have volitional control over. You don't say to your heart, beep, 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 or your adrenal glands, adrenal, adrenal, adrenal. They just do that. That's why it's called the autonomic nervous system. And uh, what makes the, that particular nervous system unique is that it, uh, it secretes cortisol-like hormones into your bloodstream, especially your adrenal glands. Now, what's interesting about that is, is, is that that correlates as well to your emotions, which you don't have direct volitional control over. Think you do? Try it once. I've never liked that person, but I'm going to like them from now on. 
There's no way you can will yourself to do that. No instruction to either. Well, we're commanded to love one another. Love, yes. Like, hmm. You can't play with your emotions like that. The love of God is not dependent upon the object. You can do the loving thing whether you like them or not. And that's what we're really commanded to do. Uh, So it's an interesting thing to me when you look at just the heart itself. There's about 800 uses of the word heart in terms of human personality in your Bible. 205 times it's related to the faculty of reason. 193 times, I think it was, to the will. Only 165 to the emotion. Isn't that interesting? Don't think of your heart as the seat of your emotions. It's the seat of your reflections. It's your center of yourself, essentially. And um, what's really interesting about that is, is that you forgive from your heart that... The truth that transforms has to be incarnated. It's totally possible that you can know something and never touch your heart. You can expand the mind and not enlarge the heart. True in that for a moment. I've seen it. I've seen it in seminary as a professor. I've seen it in education for over years that people... You know, and become more and more knowledgeable. They got data. But they're no better person than they were before. So this kind of concept that if I just teach my people Sunday morning, first of all, that they're going to hear it and understand it. And then secondly, they're going to incarnate it. It's going to take it into their heart and they're going to walk out a changed person. It's a pipe dream. It's not happening. And uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, my first doctorate in education, I, I got a little bit of a feel for this. And I, I've watched that for years. I remember sitting under a, a pastor who had, and he told us about it every other week. I had 11 years of theological training. You know, last one was doctorate in, at uh, Dallas Seminary. And um, I decided as the minister of Christian education that I'd give a little test to see how we're doing to all the adult classes. We had several big ones. I mean, it was a simple kind of a test. I mean, just kind of basic Bible knowledge. Boy, was that shocking. <laughs> I, I mean, it was just shocking. It was shocking to me, but the, but the pastor, I thought he was going to have a coronary because after all those years of teaching the Bible, he thought for sure people out there heard and knew it and were living accordingly, but that proved not to be true at all. And uh, so we started with basics for a whole week, uh, nine months, I think it was. We just went back to basic things about basic doctrine and Christian, Christianity. Do many Christians in your church are cult-proof? could really defend themselves against a, you know, a good spokesperson from a cult. Just on simple things like the deity of Christ. That was one of the questions. Can you find one verse that would show the deity of Christ? Almost nobody found one. And I said, good grief. We're in trouble. And, um, well, what, what is interesting about this is, <clears throat> is, let me give you an illustration <clears throat> of how this kind of all folds together. Uh, God has given a part of you in your physical nature to help you withstand a certain amount of stress. That's your adrenal glands. When pressures come uh, in life, your mind wants to respond to that, and a signal is sent from your brain to your adrenal glands. It secretes cortisol-like hormones in your bloodstream. We get our fight-flight response to that. But if if the stress persists too long, too much, stress becomes distressed, your system breaks down, and you're going to get sick. 
Now, 30 years ago, they had a little scale called the Holmes Raw Scale. Anybody remember that a few years ago? Um, <clears throat> they took stressful situations. The top of the list, I think, was the death of a spouse, and they labeled that 100 points. Death of a son, you know, 90, or, you know, moving, 95, or something like that. The point was, in one year's time, if you go down and look at stressful situations in your life and it added up to 300, you were going to get sick. Your body simply could not respond to that amount of change and stress in your life. Now, obviously, there's some truth to that. But why is it two people can be subjected to the same degree of stress, one actually rise to the challenge and the other one fall apart? Is it because one has superior adrenal glands? No. There will be some difference there for sure. No, it's not that. It's this. It's, it's not the environment that caused that. It's your perception of the environment. You are not changed by the environment. You're changed by how you perceive it, how you understand it, how you evaluate the data that has come into your mind. Here's a stressful situation. Philistines on this side of the valley, Israelites over here. Philistine says, let's not have a bloodbath. You send your champion out, we'll send ours. Problem is they got a giant and you don't. And uh, <clears throat> so the Israelites, they're a little stressed out. I mean, their adrenal glands are, are emptying out, folks. <laughs> you know, they're having an adrenal exhaustion problem. And uh, they're all trying to figure out who's going to do it. And along comes David. And the king's armor was even too big for him. He said, how dare you taunt the armors of the living God and brings out his slingshot and slays the giant. Now, what's the difference between the two? One saw the giant in relationship to themselves. The other saw the giant in relationship to God. Now, can faith have that kind of an effect on us? Absolutely. But you don't get that overnight. If you read the context, he'd already seen God deliver him from a bear and a lion. And so faith is a growing concept for all of us. But let's put that together for a moment. The Israelites at that time saw the giant, how big he was, heard the boasting. That was just information that was sent through the ear gate and the eye gate, sent to the brain. But it was the mind that interpreted the data. That's what determined the signal that was sent to the adrenal glands. What you have control over is not your emotions, but your mind, what you think. So therefore, think, therefore, as to have sound judgment. And um, that's what you actually have volitional control over. You can choose what you think. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So is he. Now, you consider that. And uh, always for every believer, you've got those flesh patterns in your life. This is the way I used to live before. This is the way I dealt with pain before. And this is going to kind of raise this ugly little head every time stress comes. You know, you used to drink to solve your problems, but now you've got another option. We always have that choice, plan A or plan B. We got that. <laughs> and plan A is what we choose by faith. Now, I personally think we need to cut, our, especially our young people, a little slack because what's dominant in your mind when you first became a Christian is everything you'd learned from that point before, right? And so when Paul says, I'm writing to you because you're still carnal, he was mad because they're still carnal, not that they were at one time, but that you're still, you haven't grown, you haven't matured, and you haven't dealt with your issues. And um, so plan A, plan B. I saw a, a, a note on our desk. We received this letter from one of our former students' wives. She said, I knew I was in trouble when I saw on his desk the book Creative Divorce. 
He was considering plan B. Can I be honest with you? If you've got a plan B, you're probably going to need it. If you're making plans for plan B, you've already stepped over the line in my estimation. And uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you nicely set aside the commandments of God to observe your traditions. And that can happen to any one of us. And so what we need to do is to fix our mind and mind on Jesus. Now, let's go on from there for a little bit because how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to win this battle for our mind? Flesh patterns are, are just, frankly, uh, neural pathways in your brain. Knee-jerk responses. Uh, you're an adult child of an alcoholic. <clears throat> the the uh, major drinker was the father who has three sons. The father comes home bellering and angry and it becomes one of domestic violence. The three boys respond differently. The older one says, you lay one hand on me, so help me. He stands up to dad. The middle one accommodates. Hi, dad, can I get you something? And third one runs and hides. 20 years later, dad's long gone. They're middle-aged adults. They're confronted with a hostile situation. How do you think they'll respond? Chances are the old one will fight, the middle one will accommodate, and the third will run and hide. That's a stronghold. Homosexuality, it's a stronghold. I think some people think it's totally resistant to the gospel. Never. God created us male and female. You can take a DNA sample of your skin and determine your sex, folks. Your gender, I should say. That's an important distinction, by the way. God creates male and female as a gender statement. It's not a sex statement. Sex is part of that. But the primary issue is, is gender. That God created us male and female. So how'd they get that way? Well, I mean, if, if they would be honest and publish the studies about it, you'd be amazed how many of these people have been sexually abused. Incredibly high for our gals, over 60% for our men. And um, so that's part of it. Part of it is just teaching. And right now, that's scary. Uh, here's a good story for you. I love this. I was going, I was speaking at a Cannabis Christian Conference Center, and a lady called up and said, can you carve out an hour for us this afternoon? I got a 12, 13-year-old son, and so he came by. This is an incredible story. Uh, Mom and dad had one child, loving family, were familiar with my material, and that's why they called. But uh, the boy, about six months prior to that, was kind of like the star of the youth group and gave a message one Sunday night, you know, as a group presented. The next Sunday, he was sitting in church, looked up at the pastor, was overwhelmed, homosexual thoughts towards his pastor. Here's the odd part. Told his parents. That'll happen one in 10,000, to be honest with you. Here's the other odd part. They knew what to do about it, which essentially is nothing. Son, did you want to think those thoughts? No. Then why do you think they're yours? They understood this as a spiritual battle and dealt with it appropriately. I'll promise you something, folks. If he hadn't shared that with him and struggled with it, and that kind of an attack continued on, I can almost predict with incredible accuracy what will happen. He'll step out of the closet when he's 18, walk away from the family and the church. It's happening all across the country. All began with a little battle in your mind. That's what I want to turn to next. And uh, going back to our passage, and we are taking every thought captive. The word thought there is the Greek word noema. I don't want to get too technical with here, but I want you to have confidence from Scripture about what we're saying. 
That Greek word is only used about six times in your Bible. Four of them in 2 Corinthians. And it's very, very revealing. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. <clears throat> Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his... Noema, same word. Isn't that interesting? I spent... Uh, Meals Together with Wayne Grudem, most read systematic theologian in the world today. And he's an editor of the English Standard Version Bible, and he was proud to give me a copy and a concordance and, and said, we've made sure that we have used the same word. If we use it, translate it one way, we, we try to stay consistent. And I said, well, let's check that out. We checked it out on this one. And uh, this is no reflection on him. But it was really interesting because it's translated three different ways in one, one uh, book of the Bible. But would it make a difference to you? We are not ignorant of his thoughts. Should. And again, it's what I'll go back to earlier. This is what we found to be Satan's greatest access to the church. If you don't forgive from your heart, God himself will turn you over to the tormentors. By the way, that is the same word that the devil's used to Jesus. Why are you tormenting us? If you want to know what that feels like, Somebody's really hurt you and you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't get it off your mind? That's what it is. Uh, let's look at another one, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds, noema, thoughts of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. How are we going to reach this world for Christ if Satan has blinded the mind of the unbelieving? Well, really, folks, that's where prayer begins. But I've also found out that if you understand that spiritual battle going on for your minds, you can expose that to them and help them know where that's coming from. <laughs> this frail of a humanity, I mean, lady, come see me at Talbot one time, walked into the office, I mean, she looked like a prisoner of war. She was just emaciated. And, um, and uh, as I was talking with her, I mean, I knew she was in spiritual bondage. But uh, 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 I said, have you ever made a decision for Christ? And she said, no. So I explained it to her. Would you like to make that decision right now? Well, not right now. I said, you're having thoughts, aren't you? Telling you not to do this or don't believe me or, you know, a few things like that. Her eyes got about that big. How'd you know that? And... Uh, I had an undergraduate student come by my office one day. She said she was researching Satanism. Wanted to ask me some questions. I said, okay. And uh, I said, by the way, I don't think you should be. She said, why not? I said, because you're not experiencing your freedom right now. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm sure you struggle in your Bible classes just trying to pay attention. I'm sure your self-esteem is down in the mud someplace. And you probably frequently entertain a lot of suicide thoughts. How'd you know that? She told a friend later who told me, that guy read my mind. I didn't read her mind. I'd just been around this enough to know a little bit of what's going on. It's interesting what happens if you expose that. Because they're not going to share that with you. Why don't we know this is going on? Would you share it with somebody in this culture? They may in other cultures, but not in this culture. Because you're going to get medicated. (laughs) 
or that's what you're afraid are, or you're afraid you're going crazy and you're really not. Now, there's the big question is, how do I know whether this is truly mental illness or if it's truly a spiritual battle for our minds? Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, and listen to the language. Doesn't use it anywhere else that I know of. The Holy Spirit explicitly says in latter times, people will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceiving spirits. That's happening right now all over the world. I have counseled, discipled, whatever you call it, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are having blasphemous thoughts, condemning thoughts. I have no acceptance to this day. It's been a spiritual battle for their mind. We learn to sit down in a quiet, controlled way, never lose control, help them submit to God, resist the devil, walk off free. Nothing magical here. Well, am I the only one dealing with people hearing voices? Absolutely not. <clears throat> every psychiatrist, every counselor in the country is. <clears throat> Some don't know it, but most do, and, and they're aware of it. What do they do? They medicate it. And uh, uh, if anybody has the courage to share that with their counselor or even their doctor, they're going to be on an antipsychotic medication probably. And this is what you'll hear. Hey, the voices stop. Well, yeah, so does everything else. All you did was narcotize it. You take the drugs away, problem's still there. So have you solved anything? No, you just covered it up. And by the way, if you don't understand this, please do. That is actually why most people take drugs and drink. They have no mental peace. You don't believe that? Ask them. They'll tell you that until you drown it out for a night or so, but you wake up the next morning just a little worse than you were the day before. And so you haven't solved anything. How much of this is going on? All over the world. And it's, it's frightening to me. How do you hear something? You have to have a sound source. That's just a compression and rare fraction of air molecules. Travels at the speed of sound. Uh, hits your eardrum. Sends a signal to your brain. You can't talk in outer space. You need the medium of air. It's a physical phenomenon. How do you see? You have to have a light source reflecting off of a material object. Uh, and that... Bounces back to your optic nerve, sends a signal to your brain. Turn out all these lights in you, you wouldn't see me. Turn them back on, I'm not here, you wouldn't see me. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's a natural phenomena. So when people say they're hearing voices or seeing things in your office you don't see, what is that? It's not out there. You wrestle not with flesh and blood. It's spiritual. But it's not out there, it's here. I've seen people sitting from, look at that. And I remember one person, I just put my hand in front of her like that, and she slapped it away. And uh, one young lady, well, yeah, I guess she was young, um, had uh, come to Christ a year earlier, came out of Mormonism. And, um, but she said, we're just plagued by suicide thoughts, just constantly. And so we sat down, we talked about it. I said, would you like to resolve this? And so we sat down, took her through the steps to freedom. And all of a sudden, Grandma, no, it started out, her dad, her mother shows up. And... Uh, no, it was her dad. He said, uh, and she started to freak out. I said, what are you seeing right now? You mean you don't see him? My dad's standing right there. Well, don't bother to look, folks, because you won't see a thing. But that doesn't mean it isn't real. The problem is it wasn't out there, it was here. I said, tell me about your dad. He said, I'm responsible for my dad. Well, she thought her dad had gone to 
his death without getting baptized or something. And, and she was going to baptize for the dead. That's what Mormons do, if you don't know that. You know why they do that, by the way? Why, why they, you can get your genealogy from the Mormon church? Because they're going back as far as they can, and they're having people vicariously go in the temple and baptizing for all these people who died, trying to save them in the past. You know that? Well, anyway, uh, so dad was gone. Let's go on. Grandma shows up. I said, tell me about your grandmother. I said, uh, well, I'm leading the family straight. Who got your family into that? It was the grandmother. So she renounced that. And, uh, but she walked off free, gave me an invitation to her wedding a year later, and she said, I've had no suicide thoughts since. And so it's an interesting thing. It's like going into your child's room at night. Mommy, there's something in my room. And you look, and you don't see anything. Honey, I looked under the bed, closet, there's nothing here, go back to sleep. You saw something in your room, would you go back to sleep? But I looked, there was nothing there. In the natural realm, that's true. But trust me, that child saw something. Here's the real hard part about that one is, is that every little kid will play imaginary games. Don't take that away. You'll stifle their creativity. That's just a part of our development. But if you've got an imaginary friend that's talking back to you, it's not imaginary. And you better find that out as early as you can with your children because if they never expose that to you, they're going to keep that friend for the rest of their life. And it's not a friend. Not a friend. And uh, now why do we have to know all this? Folks, <laughs> he's the father of lies. Truth sets us free. If, if people don't have that peace of mind, their whole growth process is thwarted. And, and once they have that peace of mind, just watch them grow. And so... What should I do about these thoughts? Should I rebuke every negative thought? Are you kidding me? That's all you do the rest of your life. You'd be like out in the middle of a lake and 12 corks around you and a ball-peen hammer and you're treading water trying to keep the corks submerged. What should you do? Ignore the stupid corks and swim to shore. We're not called to dispel the darkness. We're called to turn on the light. Now look at Philippians chapter uh, 4, verse 6. The word anxiety, by the way, let me point out something so critical to know. Um, if what we believe does not reflect truth, then what we feel does not reflect reality. Here's a little phrase you should take out of your vocabulary. You shouldn't feel that way. That's a subtle form of rejection, actually. They really can't do anything about that. What you are really saying or could say was, I'm not sure you fully understand the situation, because if you did, I don't think you would feel that way. Let me illustrate that. Let's say you've had a job for 35 years. We're kind of going through a downtime right now. Some people are getting laid off. You feel pretty good about yourself. You've been a faithful employee. You have job security, at least you think you do. You go to work next Monday, and there's a note there that says, uh, from your boss, I need to see you Friday morning at 10.30 in my office. Can you imagine what would go through that guy's mind that week? He's probably going to get angry. He's going to lay me off. 35 years of my life, and he sends a note on my desk. I'm not going to give him the satisfaction. I'm going to go in there tomorrow and quit. And his wife slaps and sells so he doesn't. And... Uh, 
But then he starts thinking back and forth, well, maybe they will. No, no, they're not going to. Now he's anxious. Anxiety is used 25 times in the New Testament. Merimaneo comes from two root words. Merizo, divide, nuas, mine. Five times it's positive. All anxiety isn't wrong. If you've got an important exam tomorrow, you probably will feel a little anxious. Proper response? Study. Your kid's two hours late. You should feel a little anxious. Pray. But 20 times it's debilitating. And uh, you can't add one cubit to your life by being anxious about tomorrow. But you can take some away. And uh, so, but he's anxious now. He's double-minded. He's going back and forth. And then after a while, by Thursday, he's settling in his mind. They're going to lay me off. I just know they are. Where am I going to get a job at my age? You know, how can I retool? What about my kids in college? You know, so he's really kind of depressed now. And Friday morning comes, he's a basket case. He walks into his boss's office, and the boss says, congratulations, we just made you vice president. And he has a coronary and dies. And uh, now think about that for a moment. That whole week, he experienced anger, anxiety, and depression. Based on what? What he thought. It wasn't true. How would he have felt that week if it had been leaked that he was going to be made vice president? What kind of a week would he have? A really good week, right? Do you see what's going on in these people you're trying to disciple? What's going on in everybody's minds? You worry at all about the coming election? Who's going to get nominated? Who isn't? Do we really trust God for tomorrow? Regardless of who gets nominated, God will still be God. Heaven will still be a prepared place. I'll still be his child. He'll still meet all my needs according to the riches and glory. I do care who gets nominated. So I'm going to do my little thing and vote. But that won't by itself solve anybody's anger problem, will it? I doubt it, anyhow. So learning to take every thought captive through being to Christ becomes critical. The best way to answer that question for yourself is, did you want to think that thought? Did you make a conscious choice to think that thought? No. Then why do you? Why do you think it's yours? Nobody else has ever given an explanation for that in many cases. We'll take a little break here. And, uh, but just one illustration. One of our faculties, wives, seminary wife, pious couple, beautiful Christian couple, they would take every summer off just to do missionary work on their own. And uh, she got pneumonia, uh, wasn't responded to treatment, so they operated and took a liter and a half of fluid out of her lungs. Then they found the cancer. And I came back that fall, and Tom called and said, can you see Robin? She's just phobic, just fearful. So I went over to the house, and uh, she wanted to talk to me alone for a moment. And that little list of who we are in Christ, I'd given that to her. She said, Neil, I just want you to know it's kind of held me together, but I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I said, Robin, if you're not a Christian, I'm in deep trouble. I said, why would you even think that? I go to church and I have these blasphemous thoughts. Blasphemous against God. Oh, Robin, did you want to think those thoughts? Did you agree with them? Did you make a conscious choice to think those thoughts? No. Then why do you think they're yours? Well, frankly, with her maturity... They were gone in half an hour. I mean, and never come back again. Why was she fearful? Well, if those were her thoughts, what would she think about herself? 
I can't be a Christian and have these thoughts. And she's facing death. That's why she was afraid. Who can blame her for that matter? Uh, you know, perfect love casts out fear, but it was questionable in her mind at that time. <clears throat> Honestly, I can tell you stories like this from now until tomorrow morning. <clears throat> on after on after on. And, uh, and we don't know what's going on in other people's minds. And in one sense, it's a good thing. How would you like to have electrodes attached to your brain and everything you thought for the next 24 hours flashed up on the screen so everybody could see it? Any volunteers? It's all kind of a good thing, right? But it's also a bad thing in the sense that we don't know what other people are struggling with. And uh, we, we see the behavioral problems or the depression or the anxiety, but we don't know what the cause is. And they're not going to share it with you if they suspect that you won't understand it. So nobody's going to deal with this. We don't know how to deal with it. It's a hidden thing. It's in our minds. As we think within our hearts, so are we. And so we see the so easy and try to change that. And that kind of behavioralism will never work. You'll never make a disciple by trying to change your behavior. You make them by helping them be transformed by the renewing of their minds, by establishing them alive and free in Christ. And then you just watch how they devour God's word and how they see what they never saw before, that I'm a child of God, that I'm in Christ, that I'm alive, and I'm free. And folks, what I'm really getting at, we have an answer. We honestly have an answer. And we have to provide a means for these people who are struggling with same-sex attraction and all these kind of problems that we have in our churches. And, and just standing in a pulpit preaching at them is probably not going to do it. We need to learn to sit down and have trained people. We would love to do that, by the way. We have an online university. We have a practicum you can go to. Uh, we'll do the training for you if you want us to. But it's not that hard. As Daryl said, you know, it's kind of a joke in our ministry. We just show up. God sets them free. And that's, that's actually the gospel truth. But there are complex cases. requires some training, and we want to try to do that. And uh, that's what we're doing around the world. Uh, Nobody's going to be, we see no manifestations. We've, we've learned how to never lose control. We can take the most severe cases of, of, of demonic oppression you can think of. Never lose control. Just deal with the person. Help them assume their responsibility and submit to God. So the group session, we've never seen any manifestations. So don't worry about that. Uh, but it's an encounter with God is what it really is. And we'll just lead you through the prophets. Actually, Dan's going to do that for you. But the forgiveness is the biggest issue. And... Uh, and it's the hardest to process in a group, and we understand that. But there isn't a person here who hasn't been hurt, who hasn't uh, been rejected and pushed down and shoved. And, and so we're, we try to be sensitive to that as we can. But how big is it when the Lord said that I must have to turn you over the tormentors if you don't forgive from your heart? To forgive another person as Christ has forgiven you is the most Christ-like thing you'll ever do. I really believe that. Uh, Forgiveness is what sets a captive free. Only to realize you were the captive. Bitterness is like swallowing poison, hoping the other person will die. And as long as you labor in bitterness and hang on to the past like that, your whole future is just, is just thwarted. I mean, because you, you the past is just haunting you and will continue to do that. And people will notice it because that root of, Bitterness is going to spring up and many are defiled. It doesn't just affect you, it affects people around you. 
in Canada, we, uh, church asked us to do a video conference. A Canadian director went over for a week, and they would do individual appointments throughout the week. But there was a man in the church, the pillar of the church, 73-year-old man. He was against it. Yeah, they voted it down, and we, they had it anyhow. But he came, to everybody's surprise, sat in the back like this, you know, inspecting and waiting for me to say something on the screen they could throw a rock at, and uh, didn't happen. And Robert went to him and said, I'm going to counsel this guy in the afternoon. Would you sit in as a prayer partner? Just, you don't have to do anything, just sit as a prayer partner. I'm sure he came to inspect. And that afternoon, God set that young man free. And that old man went to him and said, would you do that for me? Robert said, well, I'd have to stay over Sunday. Would you? For you, I'll do it. But I don't want anybody else in there with me. Okay? Saturday, he went to the young man. I was a prayer partner for you. Would you be for me? Sunday afternoon, that 73-year-old man finally forgave his father. Can you imagine, folks, the damage that has done to his marriage, to his family, and frankly, to the church probably? That road of bitterness didn't affect just him. It affected everybody he knew. How much of that is going on in our churches? Thank you, Lord. That was good timing. Any question? I want to be sensitive to your needs and uh, uh, how we can do this. We have an online university. You have to go through Victory Over Darkness and Bondage Breaker. By the way, first two books I ever wrote. There are 70 others, by the way, but those are the first two, and they've been on the bestseller list now for 30 years. I totally rewrite. Harvest House asked me to do this, The Bondage Breaker. So what changed? Me. <laughs> 30 years. And uh, I'm a much better writer now. The uh, message is the same, but there's more insight. also did Victory Over the Darkness. That'll come out next June. Totally rewrote that. And again, it's the same you know, core message, but just written a lot better. And for me, that was like putting a period at the end of a sentence. First book I ever wrote, had a chance to rewrite it. Not too many authors get a chance to do that. So I found that to be a, you know, just an incredible blessing, to be honest with you. I hadn't read them in years. So you go back and you look, whoa, I have gotten a better writer. But anyway, um, and uh, they're kind of a, the core of our message around the world and, and helping other churches and that. And, and it kind of surprises me everywhere I go, there it is. And, and so it's encouraging. I think there's over two million of each, each sold around the world right now. But um, it's not me. You're looking at the guy that never wanted to write a book. That's the gospel truth. I, and I didn't start until I was 39. And, uh, but uh, I know God wanted me to. And uh, taking care of my wife for seven years with dementia gave me an opportunity to do some of the best writing of my life on Fear is a new book, Anger is a new book. Uh, the Victory Series, which is a discipleship series, once you get them through that, is a year-long study. You can check into that for us as well. It's a very, pretty complete, comprehensive, systematic theology and, uh, to help our people get grounded in God's Word. Uh, I want to read a fun little book, uh, The Power of Presence. Three years into the ordeal with Joanne, uh, I started to experience the presence of God in a way I never had before. I'm the only one who gave her a bath during those seven years. I'm the only one who fed her for seven years. But I started to experience that presence of God, and I started to write a little book called The Power of Presence. 
It's not about dementia. It's about experiencing the presence of God and what my presence meant to my wife uh, during that time. But without the presence of God, nothing I shared to you today works. <laughs> it's all dependent upon God. And, uh, and once you find that peace, you won't exchange it for anything. Seven years, no social life. Did I miss it? No, not really. Don't need it. I don't need the pleasures of this world to be satisfied in Christ. And, uh, and so I thank God, you know, for the 52 years I had with my wife. I'm thankful I had enough money to take care of her during that time. The last year she was home totally by herself with me. So the last year we were just each other. And, uh, I guess you don't have any way of understanding how much your wife has meant to you until you lose them. And, uh, and, and what uh, that kind of companionship means to you until it's kind of lost. But I thank God for it. I, I really am thankful for her, for the years that God gave me. And uh, wouldn't change anything looking back. So it's a fun book to read and pick up. You can read it about two hours. It's not a long book. And, uh, but isn't that the essence of it, folks, is to experience that presence of God, to be still and know that he is God, to be able to get alone and feel a peace and to be thankful. One of the earliest lessons that I learned in life was to come before his presence with thanksgiving. I've gone through some rough times. I've been accused of all kinds of stuff through my life. But I said, in the midst of it all, I've never, I've learned never to defend myself. Just want to be like Jesus. But if it wasn't for his presence, I wouldn't be here today. And, uh, when you sit down with another person to disciple them or others, God is there. And there's a role that only God can play. You can't play that role. Don't try it. You can't change that person. You can't set them free. You can't heal their wounds. But God can, and he wants to. And he wants to do it through you and me. Isn't that true? Please come back tomorrow. I hate to say this, but you need to buy a steps booklet. If you can't afford it, we'll give you one, okay? And uh, you can get back of our book table. But we'll see you tomorrow morning. And, uh, and I'm going to have Dan lead you through that because I want it disconnected from me. I want you to know it's between you and God. But Dan is a good man. I'm glad he's on board with us. And just recently became our new president here in the United States. All right? God bless. Take a break. That's it for today's episode. Make sure to download Untangling Addiction by Marcus D. Carvalho about the scientific background behind addiction from a disciple who's also a medical professional, and he has an expertise in this area. Download this resource at discipleship.org/ebooks. Thanks for listening.